RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. Well, that's a great analogy to insurance. <laughs> I mean, insurance is a giant chess game. You know, you have you know you have the the insured, you have a claimant, you got the carrier, and they're all playing on a board together, and the path is not predictable. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner in the law firm RPC, and in each episode, I am joined by a guest, and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week, we have James Benham, and we're going to answer the question: Will an insurance robot take my job? James is a serial entrepreneur. In 2006, he co-founded SmartBid, a bidding network for construction companies. And he is currently CEO and co-founder of three InsurTechs, Smart Compliance, Terra and JB Knowledge. In addition, he has been a city councillor, mayor pro tem and planning and zoning commissioner for the city of College Station in Texas, which is about 100 miles inland from Houston. As if that were not enough, he has also been an adjunct professor at Texas A&M University and he is currently regent of Texas Southern University. And as if that was not enough, he co-hosts the InsureTech Geek podcast, and he writes and speaks widely on the future of insurance and the rise of artificial intelligence, which is what we're going to discuss today. So James, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, you always start your podcast with a, with a discussion of the weather. Which is a very British thing to do. So actually, I'm quite yeah. You know, I might introduce it to my one as well. So so in order to make you feel at ease, James, where are you, and what's the weather like where you are? I'm in my lovely town of College Station, Texas. It is 75 degrees and sunny, cool breeze out of the west. Uh, and I'm half British, so it would make sense that ah. I would open with a talk on the weather. I'm a Benham from Plymouth, England. Uh, and, uh, I, I, I have, I have verified the lineage all the way back. Uh, you, you weren't one of the Mayflower families, were I you? I was right after the Mayflower, the, the Mary and John 1631. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. And we, we have it all the way back and I, uh, I'm an Anglophile as too, uh, too. So I'm, I'm dangerous because I grew up on Britcoms, uh, <laughs> and it, I, I grew up on Britcoms and BBC radio. So I, I'm da- I'm dangerous because for me London is the center of the world. Uh, I love all things British entertainment. I grew up on Are You Being Served, Red Dwarf, and Blackadder. Are You Being Served isn't necessarily the uh, the, the greatest introduction to British humor. I have to say it's not, but uh, it's what my parents liked, and so I watched it. But uh, Red Dwarf and Blackadder were definitely my jam. Uh, very happy with them. Uh, and, very and happy of course, with them. The quinti- and of course, the quintessential Doctor Who that cannot be left out of any conversation about British sci-fi. Absolutely. Um, oh, of course, you're a Trekkie, aren't you, as well? I'm a hardcore Trekkie. <laughs> yes. yes, yes, to the point that that um, my letter my letter opener is a batlet, um, and uh, I've got a, you know, my, my pen for my, my shirt. Uh, yes, I'm a, I'm a uh, for those of you that are just listening, I'm pulling out all my Star Trek paraphernalia. Um, I'm a, I am a fan. <laughs> Anyway, we, we we really ought to start the topic that we're meant to be discussing. Oh, so, so pish um, posh. Let's pish, talk pish, about fun things. Pish posh. <laughs> Let, let's talk about Red Dwarf for uh, another half hour. Um, <laughs> I could totally talk about Red Dwarf for half an hour. <laughs> um, uh, the, your pod, the podcast that you do is called uh, Insure Tech Geek. 
podcast. Um, yeah. But which of those two elements would you say, insurance or tech, is is the main focus of your geekery, would you say? Well, I feel like it's both. I, I started this company, JB Knowledge. You mentioned three that I've got, and I do have three, JB Knowledge, Terra, and Smart Compliance. I started JB Knowledge in 2001 in my dorm room. Uh, I was already in love with technology. I started writing software when I was 11, 12 years old. Um, so I, I was super geek, super early. I was a Trekkie at 12. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm pretty, uh, you know, I'm pretty nerdy on the nerd scale of nerddom. At, at, this, at this point, I should say James is putting on a cap with a <laughs> propeller on the top of it. Yes. So I'm a propeller head. But look... <laughs> Um, I, I got my first insurance client three years in the business in 2004, and it was an inspection company that did underwriting inspections for property insurance. And then I started working with the insurance carriers and fell in love with the industry. So, you know, that's when I got really, really captivated by the, the critical social function that insurance serves. I mean, you know, insurance, it's just, it's got its tentacles into everything on the planet, and I just found it fascinating. I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur and business person first. And so I love business and I, I understand the need of insurance. If I can't get insured in an activity, I don't have a strong desire to do said activity. And so that means that insurance is critical to the functioning of, of modern capitalism. What I love about insurance, though, is the fact that I'm never done figuring it out. I was sitting with a client yesterday, a TPA client of ours, and I was getting a full education on a section, a little sliver of the insurance business that I could literally spend a year on. And I got a master class in 30 minutes on it for one of my clients. And I was, I loved it. It was fascinating. So now there's, there's a, a long answer to a short question. I'm, I'm both, but I mean, obviously from a chronological perspective, I'm a technologist first. And uh, the, the broader question that we're going to try and answer uh, today is this. Kind of, can we envisage a time when technology wholly replaces humans within insurance? So that, that that's the question we're going to try and answer. Can we imagine, for want of a better phrase, insurance robots taking the jobs of underwriters, claims handlers, intermediaries, and, and so on, kind of in effect automating the whole process from, from beginning to end? Um, but before you answer that, James, um, I want to build up in stages, so to sort of kind of create a kind of layers of, of, of argument before we get to the answer. So so first, how would you summarize where the insurance industry is at the moment? Because obviously 50 years ago, it was all humans and bits of paper, and that's all it was. Um, so so what developments have we seen over the last the last 50 years, but particularly the sort of the last you know five, 10 years? And, and, and where are we at at the moment in 2023? So uh, bottom line up front, Insurance was a very early mover in technology, which means that now it's got this huge problem of burden of legacy, right? It's got a lot of legacy software that was built in on AS400 mainframes. And I, I'm, I'm citing some specific cases that I'm thinking of that I've had to work on. Um, so because insurance was an early mover, because people in insurance saw the need for, to, to digitize what they were doing a long time ago, we now have a baggage problem that we have to maintain some really old systems that are really hard to deal with. Uh, now, look, startups raising big valuations and investing lots of money has prodded a lot of them forward and has led many mainline carriers to rapidly accelerate their, their migration programs. And that's really what they are, is they're just they're migrating from on-prem mainframe 
stitched together systems. Some carriers I've seen have 23 systems that are involved in underwriting and issuing and renewing a policy. 23, 23 separate programs. And what they've done is they've cobbled that together over 40 years, right? Ever since the first mainframes yeah. and then PCs came out. And so they, they have been very reluctant to, to move to modern technology that's cloud-enabled, web-based. Um, so I think that's really the, the challenge that so many of them have. It, it, there's a huge meat and potatoes problem. And, and that is we got some really old software that's still driving most of the industry. And I suppose because of that, it's actually still a fairly human-centric industry. So, yeah. I mean, from your experience, which parts of the insurance process are still undertaken predominantly by, by humans? Kind of, you know, I suppose one could put it in, in these terms. Kind of, what is it that humans bring to the party? Well, I think the value, let's just with the value they bring, because I don't believe humans are going to be eliminated. I mean, I'm, you know, bottom line up front again. I'm going to bluff on this one. Spoiler alert. But, but yeah, spoiler <laughs> alert. I don't think humans get eliminated from the picture. I just think that we're allowed to stop doing all the crap work that we don't like doing. And we can get down to the to the business of creating new lines, um, creating new product um, to solve market problems, like identifying where businesses have friction and how insurance companies can ease that friction. Um, and then making more intelligent decisions based on like who the team is. I mean, I think there's still room to bet on the team if you're an insurance company. If you actually develop relationships with their with your major insureds, I think that there's still room to have human and human contact and actually talk to them about their business and what they're planning on doing and getting to know them better. I believe in the role of the broker. I've I I don't recall and and someone who has listened to me podcast for the last seven years is welcome to challenge this. I don't recall ever calling for the end of brokers because I value my broker too much. <laughs> I, I, I use bro. I, I run a 280 employee company. I, I use an insurance broker and I value that relationship too much to posit that brokers won't be around. It, it's, you know, I use them for personal lines. I use them for my commercial lines. They add a ton of value because they get to know me. And I think, I think that the relationship side of insurance is routinely undervalued in conversations that insure techs have in particular Thankfully, they've all pretty much all have backed off of this notion that um, direct to consumer is going to dominate and brokers are going to be completely eliminated from the transaction because I, I don't see it happening. Like, now, most of the companies that said that are providing tools to brokers and selling to brokers, <laughs> selling to the very people whose doom they predicted. I mean, that's good to hear. And and, and anyone who kind of saw, saw the heading of, of this podcast was worried that we we're going to be saying, now nah, you, you're all going to be out of the job. They'll no. be reassured that that's that's not the answer, um, but there is going to be more tech coming in over the the, the, the coming years. And um, for my own benefit, as much as anything else, I just want to go through some technological terms. So, so James, if you if you could kind of tell me what is robotic process automation or RPA? What's that? Well, I'll tell you what, what RPA does is RPA is a fantastic bridge to eliminating crap work. Um, quickly because, uh, RPA tools, good RPA tools, good ones are intelligent, meaning they can adapt to a changing user interface. Robotic process automation allows people to take manual tasks that a, that a worker is doing. A really easy one to wrap your brain around is log into this website, download a schedule of codes, right? Like let's say it's updated rate codes. 
So you're going to get uh-huh. class codes and rates. So I want to log into a site, run a search, click export, download the Excel file and import it into another software. We can write an RPA bot. Like my team at JB Knowledge, we have like three RPA teams. They can, they can go in and use a RPA tool like UiPath and write a bot that's going to automate that task. So that worker no longer has to do that really boring, boring, boring task. Now we can use that worker to do thinking tasks. Like we can actually assign them tasks that involve using their brain and not just keyword shortcuts. We actually used RPA bots with one of our clients to deal with hurricane claims because hurricane claims come in so fast and so mm-hmm. hard. Like if you have a hurricane, there's so many of them that a lot of the, the big, big modern policy and claim softwares out there that will remain unnamed um, cannot handle the rate of record input and when you have claims being filed, you know, five a second, you can't handle yeah. And so we, we actually built a queuing bot that would allow you to input into a form and then it would put in a queue and then the robot would log into the claim software and file it at a rate the claim software can handle. So we used RPA to deal with hurricane cat, you know, cat claims. So bizarrely, RPA though is used to actually slow down to make it manageable. Yes. yes. Which yes. is weird. Yes, we used RPA to slow down, so they so that so that the so that the adjusters could input it at the rate they needed to, but we would slow it down for the how how the the mainline claim software could only handle so many records a second. So we actually used it to slow down the input. Brilliant. So 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 we have RPA, which um, sort of I appreciate this is a, a layman's way of describing it, but sort of mimics back office kind of tasks of human workers. Yep. Uh, um, Let's move on to artificial intelligence, the big one, the one that everyone's talking about. How does that differ from RPA, if indeed it does? Um, In fact, frankly, James, just what is artificial intelligence? Well, artificial intelligence in general, you're talking about general AI, uh, is the attempt to create a piece of software that runs on a piece of hardware that mimics a human. Um, In every every conceivable way. way. When you talk about when you talk about general AI, which I believe we're still twenty five years away from, um, that is that is creating the singularity a um, a, a human mimic, something that can grow, think, learn, reason, debate, um, have its own opinions. That's not what specific AI, specific forms of AI, or what be or are what's being used right now. So, a specific form of AI that all of us use all the time now is is speech to text. And voice commands. So um, thankfully, we all have now Siri, um, Alexa. You know, you, you run through and name all the different things. That that is a form of AI. Um, image recognition is a form of AI. The fact that you can go to Google and type in "show me red soccer balls that had a flag of England on them," and it can do it because it it, it has it has enough you know enough specific forms of AI. Uh-huh. The conversion the conversion of a the conversion of an open question to a structured question is a specific form of AI. And then when you get into machine learning models, but you know, machine learning and deep learning are segments of AI that um, allow you to teach a machine how to learn. Arthur Lee Samuel was one of the granddaddies of machine learning. And in the 1970s, he taught, or 60s, 70s, he taught a computer how to play checkers against itself. And that was one of the early challenges was board games and then we moved on to chess and eventually ibm deep blue beat the world chess champion and the the last big human game that had not gone down to ai was go 
yeah. just Go is, is one of the most complex board games that we have as human beings. And that went down a few years ago. So, you know, that you can use specific forms of AI. And, and again, machine learning and deep learning are a subset of the AI community where you teach a machine how to learn because you can't possibly program all the outcomes. A lot of what you saw in early stage insured tech that claimed to be AI was just if then conditional statements. If the user says this, then do this. So they're trying to think of every potential outcome and they're trying yeah. to pro program a decision tree for all of those potential outcomes. But that requires a human being to sit there and think about all the potential things that could happen. And that's actually not really reasonable. And that's the we, you know, the same thing was with board games, right? It's not really reasonable to code every potential path to victory that a world chess champion may take what? or a even more complex a world go champion may take. Mm. And so that's where you have to teach the machine how to learn, let it play itself billions of times and let it learn paths to victory and then be able to adapt to things that the player does that are unpredictable. Well, that's a great analogy to insurance. <laughs> I mean, insurance is a giant chess game. You know, you have, you know, you have the, the insured, you'd have a claimant, you got the carrier and they're all playing on a board together and the path is not predictable. The, the, the optimal outcome is indemnification, right? The restoration of the insured to the previous state before the claim. Um, and, and you want to get there as quickly as possible. So, you know, I'm seeing some really interesting things being done in machine learning around claim recommendations, recommending reserves. So we don't over or under reserve recommending treatments for the claimant. And that's where I, I think that machine learning has a, a lot to add, um, in the insurance process is, you know, helping make better underwriting decisions, um, helping make better claim decisions, recommending treatments, recommending reserve types. You know, that's, that's really where a lot of the juice to squeeze is, I think, because there's simply too many potential outcomes and probabilities for a human to remember all of it. Now, it's also why a really good underwriter is worth their weight in gold, because subconsciously they're doing a lot of that math. They have a gut feel and the gut feel is informed on 30 years of underwriting and they don't know why. They can't tell you why this, per this company is a bad risk, but they know it is. Uh, and it's because subconsciously their brain is doing what a lot of these machine learning algorithms are doing. AI, I'm just, I just want to be clear as to, to, to what it is and what it's capable of doing and what its current limits are. So yeah, yeah. You, you talk about this, this the singularity, the, the sort of you know, 25, 30 years away where yeah. you have uh, a, a robot which is thinks like a human. It, Indistinguishable it's, from a human. It's indistinguishable from a human. So that presumably means that, that it has an ability to conceptualize the future and be genuinely creative as opposed to just uh, rehashing stuff that it's it's seen before. So, but, but we're 25, 30 years away from that. So, so, so what, what are the current limits to, to AI? It, 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 does, it, does AI at the moment simply rely on the past and just dresses it up in in fancy wrapping paper, or does it actually conceptualize the future? Well, nothing can predict the future that we know of. But it can, like but, you can get, think, but you can conceptualize the future. You can conceptualize. You can you can assign probabilities to outcomes. Yeah. I think that's why it's important to say that, like predictive analytics, another popular phrase in, in sure tech you're not actually predicting the future. You're assigning a probability to an outcome, right? Yeah, you're, like you're, turning, I mean, you're turning an uncertainty into a risk. Yeah, and all things in insurance have been predictive analytics. And that's why it's a little bit 
disingenuous to say it's a new concept. Just people have been predicting outcomes since the beginning of insurance. The difference now is that we have a few things converging simultaneously that radically change the whole world. First, we have really high-speed internet everywhere, everywhere. Starlink is going to change the planet, whether people acknowledge or not, 40,000 satellites delivering 100 meg plus anywhere in the planet is a game changer. We have the ability now to actually collect data on things that were previously completely unable to be collected from. And that's completely different, right? Like, you know, 30 years ago, you could not actually measure the driver's behavior. Now you can plug into an OBD2 port or use an app on their phone and you can tell how fast they drive and where they go and how many miles they drive and, you know, how hard they turn, how hard they brake. You can tell a lot about a driver now that you could not do before because we have cheap devices that are all universally connected to the internet. And now we have, a, we have thousands of objects orbiting the planet collecting data. If you look at the number of deaths from natural events over the last 200 years, it, our modern times look like it's at zero. Because as soon as we got satellites flying over the planet, taking photos and sending it back of where weather was, we were able to start predicting where weather was going to happen. And, and as soon as now we have micro forecasting that's tied into insurance platforms so that we can tell the minute a rainstorm or a, a thunderstorm is going to hit a specific site that's insured and we can, we can prep and brace the job site and then get it back you know, into production the next day. We're not looking at forecasting on a city level. We're looking at a block by block level. Here's your forecast. So that's the big change is the prevalence of really cheap hardware, really pervasive internet and really cheap storage. Those have smashed together in the last five years to produce a lot of the potential that you're seeing on property insurance, on work comp, where you can track workers, you have wearables everywhere. That That's a big change. And um, I, I mean, whilst we're talking about kind of data and I mean, in 2021, um, I mean, the World Economic Forum predicted that there would be one trillion connected devices by <laughs> yeah. 2025. So only a couple of years away. Um, and uh, in, in one of your podcasts, I heard you quote um, Michael Stonebreaker, um, who described big data as big volume, big velocity, big variety. And from what I can glean at the moment, there is an enormous amount of collation of data, but we haven't even begun to analyze it yet. Not really. Kind of, yeah. is, is, is that right? And, and, and how do you think that's going to develop right. over the next two years? It is right. And I, I advise all of my clients to have a data collection first strategy. Um, you can't go back and reconstitute data easily. So what I tell my clients is before you're going to figure out your data use, figure out data collection and start collecting it. So that means carriers need to ask their TPAs for much larger claim data feeds. That means carriers need to ask their insureds to you know, uh, sign in or give them incentive to start signing in and collecting specific specific data on whatever risk they're insuring. You know, if you're if you're insuring ships that are shipping across the ocean, then you need to have a partnership with marinetraffic.com so you can get a data feed on all the ships on the planet where they go. If you're insuring airplanes, you need to snap into the ADSB exchange network so you can track all the airplanes. Can you can you believe this? Can you believe this? I cannot believe this. We have systems that track every single airplane on the planet and where they fly how much they fly, how many hours they fly, and where they go. Do you know how many insurance carriers have ever used that data when I have applied for insurance? Zero. And that's the, 
that's the mind-blowing thing is that now we have this pervasive, widely available data on what all of these machines and insured objects are doing and still they're not leveraging it. So I definitely believe in a data collection first strategy so that when you actually decide to take action and build an analytics platform, you have two, three, four, five years of data to really sink your teeth into and understand. Otherwise, it'll be another two or three or four years before you have enough data to constitute a, um, a viable output. Let's go back to our original question, which is, is an insurance robot going to take my job? And let's yeah. look at the, the sort of the specific areas of insurance <laughs> and, and where, where all of this, the kind of what changes all of this might lead to. So uh, obviously yeah. the three main areas, kind of distribution, underwriting and claims. So, so let's look first at distribution. How do you think that technology is going to change the process of purchasing insurance going forwards? Well, I've already noticed a good bit of uptick in adoption in the broker in, in the broker community of software that doesn't require the insured to fill a damn PDF out every year. Can we just start with the basics? How about you don't ship your insured's PDFs and make them fill it out by hand? Because that was happening to me last year and to a lot of people that I know last year. They're finally, finally, finally starting to utilize software that auto-populates the previous year's answers and allows you to modify them in a web-based form so that you can really streamline data collection from the insured. The connection between brokers and carriers could not be more important. Uh, there needs to be a continuing integration of the of brokers and carriers so that brokers can collect that data in one format from their, from their insured and then submit that data to 30 carriers without having to fill out their proprietary PDF fill form or go to their portal and fill out a proprietary form. That's, that is critical, and that's, that's starting to happen now. So I think that's really, really important. That, that net impact is going to be a much smoother renewal process, a much easier process for getting an initial quote, much easier process to bind, and a lot less craft work for brokers so they can do what I really want to pay them to do, which is come visit me, come to my office, look at my operations, and help me identify risks that I'm not covered for so that you can help me be protected in case of an event. And so that's really where I think the impact's gonna be. It's hopefully a better experience and a more consultative approach to, to broking, as you call it in England, um, that, that, uh, that, that can, can benefit the insured. You know, and if you, if you look at carriers, where, where does this impact them? Well, hopefully uh, a much quicker time of collecting data and processing that data and their models so they can make an intelligent decision on the risk based on the people that are running the company or the person, if it's a personal alliance coverage, uh, their history, looking at individual risk rather than just shelf rating everything. I mean, isn't it frustrating that when there's two or three bad actors in a given market that it pushes, you know, and, and some really bad claim events that a lot of people who are really good risk get pushed out because they're shelf rated off the shelf, right? They, mm. they just get pushed off the shelf. And that that sucks. Or if you look at cyber, you have a you have a few really horrible claims driving up, you know, tripling tripling premiums in a single year for the entire cyber market. When you had some risks that should not have been shelf rated with all their peers because they were actually, you know, they had zero claims for eight years or ten years, and they had all the appropriate measures to put in place, and they were already, um, you know, SOC two type two compliant. So that's really where I think a lot of the answer can be is they actually, the, the, the analytics platforms get, you know, streamlined enough of their time that they can start looking at the risks instead of just 
group rating everybody and pushing the whole, you know, tripling the entire market. So, so that's distribution. Um, I want to move on to underwriting now. Now, by coincidence, I heard a quote this morning uh, which said uh, uh, an underwriter will not l- lose their job to AI. They will lose their job to someone who embraces AI, which I thought was quite neat. And I just wanted to put that to you and, and to see whether you agreed with that or not. I I would agree in principle that people who leverage AI are going to have more time to provide a proper analysis because the AI is going to be doing a lot of the heavy lifting on the mundane menial tasks that they have to do. I still know a lot of underwriters who spend a lot of time keying being that. Exporting, importing, keying data and filling out sheets, uploading. I mean, that's, there's, underwriters spend a lot of time doing boring menial tasks. And so an underwriter who's using specific forms of artificial intelligence to automate menial tasks and to provide analytics they currently can't get their hands on, um, I believe will win over an underwriter doing things, the old manual, either paper or Excel or whatever legacy system they're, they're using, because they're not going to have, they simply won't have as much time. They'll get, they'll get beat on time. The, the AI empowered, uh, underwriter will have ideally more time on their hands to actually do an analysis and much better insights because, you know, in, in, in underwriting, you're looking for two things, right? correlation and causality and really good machine learning models help you identify um causality you may not see at obvious first glance and i had a few of these instances in work comp where something came up i was like how on earth is that because the obvious ones in work comp are like comorbidity if they're uh, obese or a smoker or a diabetic you you would you would expect them to take longer to get back to work because their medical treatments are going to be more complex. They're going to have more knock on effects. There's going to be a lot of other issues, but there's more than that. Like when you start looking at causation and cor- correlation, um, you you finally realize that their lawyer matters. Are they represented by lawyers? And then the 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 lawyer that represents them matters. How how militant is that lawyer? Yeah. You know, so those things all contribute to to high claim costs. Um, and, and software helps you identify that. And I think that's actually one of the really cool features of really good BI software is it has the ability to, to dive into your data and look for what it thinks might be causality. It says, Hey, these items are correlated all over the place. What do you think? <laughs> right. And it's, and it's just, if, you, if you've never used it, it's a button called smart insights on your data and it'll literally rip through your data and it'll then show you graphs. Hey, look, look at all this correlation in your data that you didn't ask about. That's where I think underwriting can really benefit because they can, they can identify new trends. And what about claims? So uh, how can the, the claims process be sped up through AI and machine learning and all yeah, those clever we, things? Yeah, full disclosure. I mean, I own a claim software company. So Terra claims the work comp first claim software company. So I think about this problem a lot. I think about claims a lot and I've been writing claim software for a long time. So I would say that the most obvious one is in treatment recommendations. How do you get a claimant in a, in an injury case where they're injured in an auto liability accident or they're injured in a, you know, bodily injury or they have, uh, you know, you're in a work comp accident, workplace injury. Um, how do you recommend whether they see a doctor or a nurse or what doctor they see? How do you use data? to recommend treatments so we can get them back to work or get them restored, get them indemnified faster, right? That's the, I, I think that's really a huge area for claims. Now, the, the case that a lot of people talk about is, is auto adjudication. 
um, automatic adjudication. In other words, um, if, if the claim amount is small enough and you can look at enough data sets and you can interpret those data sets accurately enough, you can let a machine make a decision to pay a claim out so you can not have to load up the adjuster. And so I think that certainly a goal would be to auto-adjudicate small, easy claims using machine learning so you can make recommendations and, and, w- and with confidence pay a claim out without having a human looking at that claim file. And then secondly, on the stuff that can't be auto-adjudicated, um, have a lot more data sets for humans and say, hey, look, there's 13 similar claims to this. We really think the reserves should be two and a half times what you set because of these 13 similar claims. Also, and, and the word similar, by the way, is where the machine learning comes in. Okay. It, it, that's similar. Similar does, does not mean that you had to hard code all the fields. Similar means the machine is capable of identifying what similar means when it looks at the claim. Um, so there's there's areas, you know, we talked about, you know, the, the big three in insurance just now, but there's a lot of room to accelerate what humans can do, but not replace them. We're we're in a worker shortage, so I don't I don't see replacement as a uh, as a practical outcome. No, exactly, and that is the final question, which and I think we know the answer to this, which is, yeah. w- will an insurance robot take my job? Well, by the sounds of it, they'll take bits of the job, and probably the bits that you don't particularly want to do. Yeah, but but humans will always remain, at least as far as. You know, for the foreseeable future, humans will remain a, a, an intrinsic part of, of the insurance process. I think it actually makes the human more valuable. Um, look, Elon's right. Birth rates are going down. We're going to continue to have a worker shortage, a worker crisis. I mean, just just birth rates below 2.2 something and that we're below it. Hmm. You know, China is on the verge of population collapse. Russia is already in population collapse. And Japan as well. Japan is deep into population collapse. The United States is teetering on the edge of it. Got some some labor problems. And so um, we need to find every way we can to accelerate what people can do so they can think and use their brain and not do manual boring work. So to conclude, James, in the context of everything that we've been discussing, what bit of advice would you give to someone thinking of accepting a job in insurance in 2023? Well, I think it's a great industry to jump into. Um it's exciting. It uses your brain. It uses a lot of math. Um, it's a relationship business. So you, you learn about a lot of negotiating with people and it turns everybody into a lawyer, which is always fun. And uh, I, I, <laughs> it really does. You start thinking about contracts all the time. So I think, I think the big advice to them is um, do it, but be aware of technologies that, can really, that you can leverage, right? I think you're going to be a much better insurance professional if you can, uh, you know, if you read about this, think about it um, and have a basic understanding of how it functions, really just how it benefits you. You don't have to understand how it works under the covered necessarily, but you do have to have an understanding of how it impacts the business. But I think it's a great industry to be in. Thank you, James. That was wonderful. Thank you so much for your time and geek out. That's right. Geek out, baby. RPC Radio. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered, which is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will also love our other podcasts, Taxing Matters and Money Covered, plus The Fix, which is co-hosted by my colleague Kelly Thompson. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you, and I hope you have a great day.